Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another installment of New Books in Military History. I'm Jay Lockenauer, your host from Temple University. And with me today is author Brian Lasley, uh, who just published a book called Architect of Air Power with University Press of Kentucky. And it's the biography of General Lawrence Cuter, who I would uh, be willing to bet you've never heard of. And um, Mr. Lasley is here to tell us why he is in fact, a really, really important figure. And I'll, I have some evidence of that that I'll bring up later too. But um, uh, Brian, why don't you tell, tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes. Yeah, so after graduating college, I did six years in the Air Force and then decided after that to go back, uh, get out and go to grad school. Uh, and the fact that I was in the Air Force uh, was not in any way representative of my desire to study air power or Air Force history or anything like that. Uh, it was just happened to be something that I did uh, after college. It was a portion of my life. So I get out and I go to grad school and I you know, really have no idea what I want to work on. Uh, and it's not until I take a seminar in air power uh, that I kind of decide, hey, this is what I want to do with my life. Uh, and then interestingly enough, after I become ABD all but dissertation, uh, I get a job with the Air Force. And so the fact that I am both an air power historian uh, and employed by the Air Force are actually two kind of separate things, uh, but they do dovetail nicely together. Great. Where did you go to school? Uh, so I went to uh, graduate school at Kansas State University. Uh, and a lot of times, you know, people say, well, you know, were you from Kansas? Had you been there before? Uh, and the answer is no, I had never even been in the state. Uh, and so why did I go to uh, Kansas State? Well, they let me in. <laughs> let you in and sometimes give you money. That can be uh, a really important factor, too. And they also have a, a, a notable program in military history. I assume that didn't hurt. That did play into it. I looked up, uh, as anyone applying to graduate school should do, uh, the professors who were there and looked at three or four and looked at their areas of expertise uh, and kind of said, hey, these are the folks that I want to study under, uh, particularly the great Donald Mrozik, who ended up being my major professor. Great. And this, now this, you've written other books as well. I enjoyed your um, uh, Air Force Way of War that came out in 2015 as, as well. Was that your dissertation or... Yeah, that was uh, kind of a converted uh, dissertation. And what had happened was I had initially wanted to write on Walt Disney. I'd initially wanted to do something about uh, the Disney company during their World War II time. Uh, they did a bunch of training films. Uh, they did a bunch of propaganda cartoons, and I found that really interesting and really compelling. Uh, but at the end of the day, at the time, uh, the archives of the Walt Disney Company were not letting researchers in. So kind of thrashing about looking for a subject, uh, and over at the Air Combat Command archives one day, uh, I found the Red Flag files. And Red Flag is a large force employment exercise. Uh, we use the term war games a lot. You've probably heard in the media recently. Uh, but it's a large force employment exercise that trains pilots for combat. So I found those files, and that made a very compelling case for me for changes that the Air Force had made after Vietnam. Essentially, the argument is that the it's training, not technology, that enables the U.S. Air Force to, to improve and, and later on to, to flourish. Yeah, I don't 
take any umbrage with the works that are already out there on technology. And it's very much an important part of how the Air Force developed after Vietnam uh, with the development of the F-117, stealth technology, the F-15, the F-16. It was all very important. Uh, But what I found was, you know, the elevator speech was Vietnam bad, desert storm good. And I kind of said, well, it can't just be the airplanes. It can't just be technology. And so I found out that coming out of Vietnam, a group of officers uh, kind of all over the country came to the conclusion that they weren't properly trained for combat. And so that was the story. And so after Vietnam, they do several things. Uh, They create the aggressor squadrons, uh, which were squadrons that were meant to simulate Soviet tactics. So they flew aircraft, uh, F-5s and T-38s that very closely simulated uh, what a MiG-21 might look like. Uh, and then they also set up the, the red flag exercise. And what that was done specifically uh, was to get the first 10 combat missions under a new pilot's belt. What they discovered was after your first 10 combat missions in Vietnam, your chances of survival went up exponentially. And so uh, Moody Suter and a number of others had kind of said, well, hey, if we can do this in a training environment, if we can do this stateside, and if we can make it as realistically as possible, uh, then maybe that will translate into actual combat success. Uh, and that is what I found. I interviewed pilots who were MiG killers during Desert Storm. Uh, one in particular told me, when I started turning with the MiG-29, in other words, got into a, a visual engagement with him, the difference between him and I was I had done that a hundred times before. Anyway, it was a very good book, and to listeners, I can highly recommend it. I, I'm this is sort of by way of apologizing to Brian that I didn't um, do one of these podcasts when his when his earlier book came out because I did did admire it. So let's let's turn to the book at hand, and I did I pronounce the general's name correctly? Yes, yeah. there's a story behind that. Yeah, there is. It's funny, um, and we still kind of uh, arguments not the right word, but we still kind of discuss this today. Uh, is it cuter? Is it cooter? Uh, is it cutter? There are various ways that people say it, uh, and I was able to discover in the archives that it is he, he was very emphatic that it was cuter to rhyme with pewter. Uh, and also he was writing a story after his time at West Point. He gets off the bus and of course the, the senior upperclassman begins yelling at him, you know, pick up your bags, drop your bags, pick up your bags. And he says, you know, cadet, what's your name? And he says, cuter. Uh, and the upperclassman says, cuter, cuter than what? To which I thought was a, a rather clever reply. Uh, Larry replies, cuter than hell, sir. <laughs> That's very good. And I guess you it was very, very much thought under you pressure. Descri- do you describe that as a reaction against anti-German sentiment in the in the during and after the First World War? Yeah, and of course, um, they asked him uh, years later after he'd retired, the Air Force does an official oral history interview with him uh, to kind of preserve his thoughts and his experiences. And they they asked him about that, if there was any anti-German sentiment. And he said, no, we never really experienced it. Of course, you know, if my name had been Spatz or Eisenhower, uh, and he listed a number of other uh, famous World War II general and admirals, who, of course, had very Germanic sounding names. Uh, Spots is an interesting one uh, because, of course, when he's born, it's S-P-A-T-Z. And it's it's later in his life when anti-German sentiment, particularly around World War One, begins to rise, uh, that uh, Spots adds that extra A into his name. Which presumably makes it look more Dutch or something? It, it makes it look, I suppose, less German. Uh, and that was kind of at the bequest of his family at the time. His, his wife and I believe his daughter said that that was something they wanted to do. So as you write in the book, you were absolutely correct. I had never heard of Larry Cuter before. So what what convinced you that he was worth a biography? So Cuter was a name for me that kept kind of popping up. 
you know, if you go to various Air Force bases, you will occasionally see a cuter street. And so that's the kind of thing that you might drive by and lodge in your mind and you kind of go, hey, I've seen that name somewhere before. Uh, And then, you know, any Air Force officer, anyone who works in air power, of course, does research down at the Air Force Historical Research Agency at Maxwell. uh, And in the Air University Library down there uh, is a painting of uh, General Lawrence Cuter. And so I passed that once or twice and said, well, hey, here he is again. And then I noticed that a lot of the books I read on World War II, his name would turn up time and again, but it was really only for a page or two. Uh, so uh, Donald Miller's history of the war in the air, uh, he is mentioned in there several times as being in Europe. Uh, then, you know, I read a different book on air power in North Africa, and there he is again. Uh, I read a book on Hap Arnold, and hey, he's in D.C. And I, I kind of start to put this this puzzle together that, man, Lawrence Cuter is a lot of places. How How is that possible? Uh, and then once I start digging into it and kind of start the preliminary research for the book, uh, I discover he's kind of the, the background architect type man, and he really is everywhere uh, during the war. And then expounding upon that, I found he was really everywhere along the way of air power development. So the the I was following your argument as I went through, and then I got to the section where there are pictures. And what finally it was sort of the final straw for me was that last picture that you include of the big three at Yalta: uh, Churchill, FDR, and Stalin. And there's Cuter behind uh, Roosevelt and Stalin. And I, I was like, "Whoa, you're you're absolutely right. He is everywhere." Yeah, and that's one of my favorite pictures. And I made sure that that was included in the book. Um, you know, and I never thought about it before. Anyone who looks at that photo, you automatically focus on the big three, as you know, you you well should. And it had never occurred to me to kind of look in the background. And depending on which version of the picture you look at, um, you know, Marshall's in the background at one point, I believe. Uh, there are several other folks who you would recognize. Uh, but Cuter is in several of those photographs standing in the background. And for me, that was that was kind of quintessential Larry Cuter. Always the background guy, never at the forefront, doing things behind the scenes, uh, always in certain places, getting things set up and organized and taken care of, uh, but never really being the focus of attention. So as, as you're indicating, he's he's with Hap Arnold. He knows Claire Chennault. He uh, works with Spatz. He works with Marshall. Um, so why is it that we don't know more about him? I, I think the principal reason... Uh, that we don't know more about him uh, is he doesn't have the combat record of of Spots who served in World War One. He doesn't have the combat record of Curtis LeMay. Uh, he doesn't have. He's not wearing the three or four stars during World War Two, uh, so he's not as famous as Hap Arnold. Uh, but he's always there. And there were a number of these uh, one and two star generals. During the Second World War, uh, Cuter is kind of one of them. And then you could throw in there Haywood Hansel, uh, Loris Norstad, uh, several others who who go on to rise to three or four star rank. But I think we don't know who he is is because he's he's kind of above that level of squadron commander flying the bombing missions. And he's kind of below that three and four star level. So he's he's one of these kind of principal background guys who are doing the legwork. Um, and I think I mentioned in the book that it, it doesn't necessarily uh, make for sexy writing. It's not air-to-air combat. Uh, it's not flying uh, a lot for, in his case, bombing missions. Uh, so I think it's easy for those uh, people to kind of get overlooked. 
I think it's something about his personality as, as well. He seems a little, I mean, not that he doesn't have a strong personality, but he's, he's unassuming in a way that Curtis LeMay certainly isn't, or some of these other characters. Yeah, he's not bombastic. Uh, he's not out there uh, trying to get his name in the papers, although that does happen uh, almost by accident uh, when he's promoted to Breeder General, and I can talk about that in a second. Uh, but he's he's not out there stepping on toes like Patton is. Uh, he's not looking to get his name in the paper. Uh, again, you know, I, I'll, I'll probably say it more than once uh, during this talk. He's just kind of the principal background guy. So tell us some of the things that he was in the background of, just to give readers a sense of of why he's he is, in fact, such an important figure. Yeah, so uh, what I found, and I'll kind of do a brief sketch of, of his overall biography here from the beginning of his career to the end. Uh, and I think what you see along the way is you go, yeah, I'm familiar with this incident. I'm familiar with that event. Okay, I didn't know that Larry Cuter was there for that. So he graduates uh, West Point in 1927, and that's important. Uh, for later when he helps to develop the United States Air Force Academy. But he was very much a West Point man. Uh, He initially joins the field artillery. He's stationed at the Presidio. Uh, It is while he's at the Presidio that he has aircraft observers uh, who he's working with. And he says, man, these guys aren't doing a great job. I could do a better job. I should go to flight school. And so he doesn't go to flight school out of any desire to be, you know, an architect of air power. He's not what I would call a Billy Mitchell acolyte. Uh, he is not one of those those principal people who kind of follow Mitchell around. Uh, and he doesn't do it because of any great sense of how awesome air power is. He does it simply because he thinks he can be better at his job as a field artilleryman. Well, he goes to flight school, and that's, of course, the last time he ever serves um, in field artillery. He gets his wings. Uh, he's stationed at Langley Air Force Base. Uh, and from there, it becomes just kind of a, a who's who that he begins to run into and work with and events that he does. So if you're familiar with the air mail fiasco, uh, which is when the United States government basically ordered the Army Air Corps to fly the mail, uh, it did not go well. Uh, Larry Cuter was assigned to the Eastern Zone in that. Uh, and what I found funny there was he's he's kind of, again, the second in command. He's working for uh, Lieutenant Colonel B.Q. Jones. Uh, and Jones is is not really happy no matter where he is. So he's he sets up shop at, at one field. Cuter shows up and Jones says, hey, I'm going to move us to Mitchell Field in New York. So you're in charge here. I'm going to go set us up in New York. Uh, and Cuter's answering phone calls. You know, hey, where is Jones? What's going on with the airmail? Uh, and Cuter doesn't really know what to say because, honestly, he doesn't know where his boss is. Uh, Cuter jumps in an airplane, flies up to Mitchell Field. Again, Jones tells him, I'm leaving. Uh, and really, at this point, Jones is leaving because he's coming to confrontation uh, with Fiorella LaGuardia. Uh, and so he wants to get away from LaGuardia. Uh, and again, LaGuardia shows up at Mitchell Field asking where Jones is. And Cuter kind of has to say, I really have no clue where he is. Uh, and so he does, uh, he's involved in the airmail fiasco. He writes the, the final report for that. Uh, and then he goes back to Langley and he's selected to go to the Air Corps Tactical School. Uh, and the Air Corps Tactical School, if you're not familiar with it, it was kind of like the command and general staff college, but strictly for airmen. And so if you were anyone who is anyone in the air arm, you wanted to go first to the Air Corps Tactical School and then for promotion as a follow-on to the Command and General Staff College. Uh, But during the 1930s, this is where really the theory 
before strategic bombardment in World War II is developed. Uh, so Cuter is down there at kind of a fortuitous time. Uh, he is down there with Claire Chenault, who's advocating for pursuit. Uh, he's down there with Haywood Hansel uh, and a number of other folks. And during that mid to late 30s period, the idea of what becomes high altitude precision daylight bombing develops. Uh, and to give you an idea of how important Cuter is, he goes to the course, he's asked to stay on as an instructor, and when it's within a year, he's heading up the bombardment section. So he's really important uh, in instilling this idea of strategic bombardment into all the classes that come after him. And of course, we're familiar with strategic bombardment in World War II, but that later ties directly into the development of Strategic Air Command. Uh, so Cuter is one of the, the forefront guys uh, developing this, this theory that's going to be executed in World War II and beyond. Uh, towards the end of his time at Axe, we're coming up on 1939 at this point, uh, he's handpicked to go to Washington, D.C. And what's going on at this time is, of course, the storm clouds are brewing uh, in Europe and the United States is beginning to get a bit on a war footing. Uh, so Marshall, uh, George Marshall, is looking for young, energetic officers to come up there and fill key staff positions. Uh, and of course, Cuter fits that bill Perfectly. Uh, when he gets his orders, he's not there. His wife, uh, Ethel, actually comes in to check his mail and everyone's huddled around the desk. And she gets kind of worried because she's know he's flying at the time. Uh, and she's handed the memo that says you are hereby directed to report to Washington, D.C. And she says, damn, he wanted to go to command and general staff college. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have hurt his career any. Uh, and so 1939, he ends up working for Marshall. Uh, and a good point to be made here is that he's working for Marshall and not for Hap Arnold uh, and the United States Army Air Corps, uh, very soon to be the United States Army Air Forces. Uh, so he's actually working directly for Marshall. Uh, there's a lot of things that he is involved in at this time. Uh, he does... Um, the McNarney plan, which helps to reorganize the Army Air Forces. Uh, and then he gets detailed to work on AWPD-1. Uh, and AWPD-1, Air War Planning Document 1, is the doctrine of strategic bombardment put into plan form. Uh, what had happened is as all of the rainbow plans are being coalesced into the victory plan, at some point, someone along the way realizes we don't have an air plan. Uh, and so Cuter, along with Haywood Hansel again, uh, Hal George and Ken Walker, uh, I like to think of them kind of kind of shoved in a closet or a staff room for nine days and basically told, all right, you now have to write the, the air war plan for World War II. Uh, and that's exactly what they do. They write AWPD-1 in like nine to 10 days, takes them another day or two to get it briefed. Uh, but again, here's another example of Larry Cuter kind of being that behind-the-scenes architect guy. Everyone knows who studies air power, AWPD-1, but you might not necessarily know the guys who wrote it. And so Cuter was one of the principal architects of the air plan for World War II. Uh, and then I'll, I'll add here as well, it's it, almost the exact same time. Uh, so the plan is written in August of 1941. Uh, in early December of 1941, uh, the plan is leaked to the presses and it shows up in the Chicago Tribune. And there's a whole FBI investigation as to who leaked the plan, who knew what when, who had copies of the plan. Well, of all the copies of the plan, I think there were like 20 of them. Uh, Larry Cuter was responsible for about 16 of those. The other four being in the White House. Uh, I think that is a story that would have had very long legs 
uh, and gone far had it not been for the fact that this story broke on December 6, 1941. Uh, and as you can imagine, on December 7th, everyone's attention is now focused elsewhere. But in testimony to, to Cuter's um, organizational abilities, the FBI ultimately kind of cleared him, so to speak, and, and um, established that none of his copies seem to have gone missing. Yeah, they showed up at his office the next morning. In fact, he gets to uh, to the War Department that morning. Uh, he's getting his morning briefings. He's looking at the Chicago Tribune, uh, and he looks over the top of his paper, and here comes the FBI walking up to his desk. Uh, but he was able to uh, account for all of the copies of the, the victory plan that he had. So that seemed like an enormous part of his success, and but maybe also his kind of background status was that he was just an amazing officer. I mean, he he was an educator, he was an organizer, he could write war, he could write these plans. I mean, he he was um, really multi talented. Yeah, you know, I, I think it goes back to his organizational skills, and this is why uh, during the Second World War he's kind of sought after in so many places. Uh, and again, why would a, a such a junior lieutenant be put on the the airmail um, problem? Uh, because he was this kind of this principal organizer, could run a staff, could get the paperwork done. And again, that doesn't really make for, for sexy writing. Uh, but anyone who has sub- served in any type of military establishment will tell you just how important that staffing process is. So, you know, it doesn't make uh, for really interesting writing, the staffing of things, but it's enormously important, especially when you look at that particular period prior to American entry in World War II. And then in World War II, he's just, as, as you've already said a couple times, in an, a, a bewildering number of places. How many times does he end up going around the, the earth? I, I think he has a total of three, two or three. So I know two for sure. And I can't remember if, if it was three, but two for sure circumnavigations of the globe. Uh, in fact, I did not know this, that there is, in fact, a, a circumnavigators club. Uh, and so he is one of the few people who had done it twice. Um, but that's because uh, when he gets back from his overseas deployments, Arnold kind of sends him on all these other missions. And so there's there's all these places that he goes. Uh, and at times he's, you know, he's halfway around the world when he's getting messages, hey, turn around and fly back. Uh, no way. Stop. Go back to where you were. Uh, so he just does an enormous amount of traveling, even for, you know, seasoned officers in the Second World War. He is in a, a real number of places. Uh, but I'd like to mention, you know, I, I kind of said earlier that he liked to keep his name out of the papers. Uh, and you can see this in his letters home uh, that he he does not want his wife or his family saying where he is, what he's doing, what he's up to. Uh, he wants to stay as far away from the front pages as possible. Uh, well, inadvertently and not really his fault, uh, as World War II is approaching in, in 1941, or rather, I'm sorry, uh, after American entry in 1941, and as we are kind of getting going in 1942, uh, Marshall and Arnold uh, and the other leaders of the services are looking to kind of kind of swell the ranks of senior officers. So they're reaching down uh, to younger uh, colonels uh, to bring them up to general officer rank. Well, Cuter had just pinned uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, and Arnold didn't pick him for a general officer assignment, but Marshall did. Marshall reached out and said, no, I want I want Cuter as a brigadier general. So at the age of 36, he becomes a brigadier general, uh, and he's the youngest brigadier general since William Tecumseh Sherman. And, of course, that kind of made him for a time sort of a media darling. Uh, he's a young, you know, I would say kind of 
dashing, daring, good-looking young officer. Uh, he's got that pencil-thin mustache that so many wore back in the day. Uh, I've been told on more than one occasion he he bears a slight resemblance to Walt Disney uh, at the time to, to kind of give you an idea. Uh, but of course, that made him something of a media darling. His picture was in the paper uh, all over the United States. Uh, and at one point, directly after having promoted, the press were surrounding his desk uh, and I think at the time, Colonel Maxwell Taylor walks up and hands him a note that says, if you're not too busy with the press, General Marshall would like to see you right now. So, I mean, his wartime career is is astonishing in its in its scope. He's in North Africa. He's in the Pacific. He might have been the one to drop uh, the atomic bombs on Japan if LeMay hadn't if he hadn't been if Cuter uh, Cuter hadn't been called elsewhere and, and LeMay comes in uh, to do that job. But then after the war. Uh, he takes on another reasonably important but not very sexy uh, task. That's the, the that's when he starts the air transport, right? Yeah, and that's actually tied into him going to the Pacific at the end of the war. Uh, he was in Europe just as Eighth uh, Air Force is standing up. Uh, he's not there very long when Spatz calls him down to North Africa uh, to be part of the uh, invasion of North Africa and Operation Torch. Uh, but at the end of the war, what he really wanted more than anything else was one more combat command. So he worked very closely with Arnold uh, on the standup of 20th Air Force, which were the B-29s that were going to fly the missions over Japan. Uh, and as those are getting ready to kind of move into the final stages of the war, he goes out to the Pacific, but he arrives at, at what I will now say is a really inopportune time uh, because he gets out there to be chief of staff. Uh, but at the same time is when Spatz and LeMay show up in the Pacific. And so Cuter is left kind of uh, last man standing without a chair. Uh, and he's kind of, he does sulk a little bit. I mean, you can tell in the letters that he's very disappointed at what has happened, uh, at what's become his lot in life. He's not going to get that final command. Uh, now, interestingly enough, uh, had he got that command, had he been in charge of, of those atomic droppings or been more involved with it, we not we might know his name more. Uh, but kind of as a consolation prize, I'll say, uh, he ends up staying in the Pacific but going over into air transport. Uh, and so now he's done strategic bombardment. Uh, he's done tactical air power in North Africa. And now he's moved over into this air, air transport. And you're right, that serves him well after the war. Uh, when he becomes uh, commander of the Military Air Transport Service, MATS, uh, and that's a combination of the uh, Army Air Forces, soon to be United States Air Force, uh, Air Transport Command, and the Navy Air Transport Command. And that's really the first joint command, you know, what we would today call a, a functional or a combatant command. Uh, that was really the first joint command. Uh, he ran that during the Berlin Airlift. Uh, it was Cuter who tells his second-in-command, William Tunner, you are needed in Europe to run this airlift. So it's Cuter that sends Tunner over to Yusefi to run the Berlin airlift. Uh, and so now he's his hands have, have been in really almost every aspect of air power. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I'm struck not as someone who's not inside the Air Force, but that, that – um, you know, airlift is is an incredibly important part of what makes the American Air Force unique and uniquely powerful. You know, people think about atomic bombs and fast jets and so forth, but the ability to move stuff around is is a, a critical capacity. Well, you know, if you look at the Cold War Air Force, I think the Berlin airlift uh, is probably one of, if not the principal 
American victory during during the Cold War. Uh, and so airlift, yeah, is tremendously important. If you go forward to Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm, uh, during Desert Shield, uh, the air transport, uh, the military airlift command uh, moved something like the size of the city of Denver from the United States to uh, the various bases in the Middle East uh, prior to that conflict. Uh, and there are probably numerous other examples uh, Operation Nickel Grass resupplying the Israelis in the 1970s that demonstrate just how important uh, air transport is. And I guess as we're, we're coming close to his final assignment then, which is also a biggie and, and one with which he, at least I think a, a lay audience, doesn't necessarily associate him. And that's the norm. So, at, yeah, after um, he is commander of MATS, uh, kind of immediately following World War II, uh, he does have some uh, military slash kind of civilian assignments, uh, working with uh, setting up air routes uh, between the nations, uh, setting up airports and, you know, what, what language are airports going to be running. So he, he does some work there, uh, but, you know, he does mats and then he kind of moves into that two and three star level where he's doing a bunch of what I would call kind of staff assignments. Uh, he does deputy chief of staff for personnel. So he's in the Pentagon at this time, uh, working on the creation of the Air Force Academy. Of course, I mentioned he was a West Point man. So that was very influential in the things that he wanted to see at the Air Force Academy. Uh, he goes from there back down to Air University. Uh, and that is where the Air War College is, where the Air Command and Staff College is. And it is important because it is where the Air Corps Tactical School had been. Uh, so he did have a very soft spot in his heart for Maxwell Air Force Base. Uh, he enjoyed expanding the college curriculum down there. Uh, that was a very important assignment from him. Uh, and then from there, on to command the Far East Air Forces or FIF, on to be the first commander of uh, PACAF. And then his final assignment is as the second commander in chief of NORAD, uh, the North American Air Defense Command. Uh, again, and I think. Uh, one of the reasons I, I chose to wrote on Cuter, and this might have been the, the straw that broke the camel's back, is I, of course, work at NORAD as the deputy command historian, and we have all of the pictures of former commanders hanging on the wall. And I remember walking by them and going, well, there he is. There he is again. Um, and so, yeah, he is the second commander of NORAD, uh, which provides the air defense mission uh, still to this day, a binational command between the United States and Canada. Uh, and of course, what most listeners will recognize the name NORAD, if you're wondering where you know that from, it's because they're the organization that tracks Santa. <laughs> That's right. I, I hadn't made that connection. And he's, I mean, in terms of the, you know, the architect metaphor, he also kind of builds Cheyenne Mountain, which is the, the iconic symbol of, of NORAD and, and Strategic Air Command and all that. Yeah, it's uh, really an iconic symbol of the Cold War. Uh, if you're familiar with the uh, great film War Games uh, from the early 1980s, uh, which takes place on kind of a, a, a stylized version inside the mountain of what the command center looks like. Uh, but uh, when NORAD stands up in 1957, 1958, the need for a hardened command center is already there. Uh, but as Cuter comes in to be the second sink NORAD, he actually oversees uh, the first explosion and the hollowing out of the mountain. Uh, and as I mentioned in the book, he goes up to visit the site uh, and he says, no, this, you know, essentially, no, this is not a big enough hole. Go back in and dig it out again. Uh, so he oversees, yeah, the actual architecture of what becomes the Cheyenne Mountain facility. 
And speaking of architecture, I'm assuming it's still there. Maybe you can confirm, but the Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs has a, a, a museum, a display of aircraft, um, inclu- including a super constellation, which is really cool. But then they have, uh, if I remember correctly, they have a, a kind of a mini Cheyenne Mountain display that shows the shock absorbers and things that the rooms were built upon, built on and the some of the ventilation systems and so forth. Is that still there? Yeah, so the uh, the mountain facility itself is still Cheyenne Mountain Air Force Station. Uh, it is principally the alternate command center for NORAD, uh, so it is kind of a backup command center, although we do work out of there uh, fairly often. The actual command center is down at Peterson Air Force Base uh, in the building that I work in. Uh, but yeah, this iconic uh, symbol of the Cold War, still there, still doing that mission. Uh, and you mentioned all of the uh, uh, the aircraft and the Constellation and a number of others. Those are all air defense aircraft which have served that NORAD mission for 60 years. I'm a big fan of, of uh, museums and so forth. So that was one that I visited when I was out there. So – um, you know, you, you get into Cuter's personal life a little bit, and obviously in his retirement, and as he as he becomes ill, you know, this is a, a, a classical biography. You're, you you in, he dies at the end. Um, spoiler alert, I guess. Um, what can you say about the end of his life, and and just maybe wrap up your experience of writing this book, and and you know, I'm I'm curious how you you know you had you tell in an engaging way the story of you know seeing him everywhere just and finally sinking in. What do you think now that it's kind of come full? circle. You know, now that I've had some time to kind of look back on the work uh, retrospectively, uh, and I do mention at the very beginning of the book, you know, I've read so many biographies or popular biographies or whatever you want to call them, where, you know, oh, he was came from a poor but firm family or however you want to phrase it. And, and I knew that this was kind of the same story, right? And so I mentioned at the beginning of the book, it's it's not unlike anyone else from this particular generation uh, that you might have read about, you know, young boy, local hero does good. Uh, at the end, uh, after he retires, he goes to work uh, for Pan Am Airlines. He re- finally retires out of there in the mid 1970s. Uh, he's working on his memoirs. Uh, and what I found interesting was that he was working on a memoir at the same time that that his wife was working on her autobiography as well. Uh, and so there, there are these two kind of joint efforts that neither of them were able to finish, uh, him because he died before they finished writing it, her because I don't think she just wanted to write after he had passed away. Uh, but he wrote Growth of Air Power. Uh, and she had an autobiography called uh, Along with Larry. And so there was this this great kind of parallel biographies where you could see what he was doing and at the same time uh, see what, what Ethel and their daughter uh, Roxanne were doing. So, I, you know, I thought that was really neat. Uh, and that kind of leads me into saying that one of the great things, and this was another reason I, I really couldn't believe anyone had written about Cuter before, uh, was that there was such a wealth of original documentation. Uh, he and his wife donated everything they had to the Air Force Academy. Uh, and so there's an entire Larry Cuter series in the archives at the Air Force Academy uh, that include 36 very, very large, so when I say scrapbooks, don't think that these are something that could sit on the bookshelf, uh, 36 bound volumes of scrapbooks that cover their entire life together, uh, in addition to you know the dozens and do- dozens of Hollinger boxes they had, uh, so there was a, a wealth of source uh, stuff to pull from. Of course, you know, kind of going back to what you said, he's not unlike a lot of other men of the age. 
Uh, and so what does he do? He smokes. Uh, there's not a whole lot of pictures, uh, particularly kind of, uh, you know, family photos where Larry Cuter does not have a cigarette in his hand. Uh, and that goes on after his retirement. Uh, into the 60s and 70s. And so, of course, uh, in the mid to late 70s, he develops emphysema, and that's what eventually kills him. Well, thanks again for taking the time to to introduce this book to us and to introduce – I'm grateful f- uh, to know more about Larry Cuter. He was a, a fascinating character and and much more influential than I, I had ever realized, and I can highly recommend the book. I, I like to, to end these interviews by asking authors what they are reading now. Is there any anything new that, that you can recommend to our listeners that's particularly grabbed your attention? You know, I, I just finished the first two volumes – of what is going to be a planned trilogy by Ian Toll, uh, his Pacific War, uh, what's going to be the trilogy. Of course, there's only two books out right now. Uh, but being, you know, if, if there's anything you, you, you learn in studying, it's how much you don't know. So whereas I focus on air power in World War II and air power after World War II, you know, I come to realize I really know nothing about uh, the battles in the Pacific, particularly the the naval sea battles. So I just finished reading those. Uh, and I'll say, but what's taking up most of my time right now is I've become a series editor. Uh, you know, after Kentucky published my two works, they asked me to be an editor on, on a new series and they already have a track record uh, in producing great air power books. So they decided they wanted to do a series. Uh, and so I'm, I'm doing a lot of manuscript reading for the books that we've got coming out in the series. Uh, and those will be coming out starting in spring of next year. So I'm really excited about that. Are you allowed to mention any specific titles? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you ask that because I, I called my editor, um, Melissa Hammer, at Kentucky yesterday and said, hey, can I, I talk about this? And so coming up this fall, uh, they will release their spring catalog. And so the first two books in the series, uh, one by Ray Johnson called Biplanes of War, and that looks at the Marine Corps uh, in kind of the small wars era. Uh, and then the other one by Phil Hahn is called uh, The Lectures of the Air Corps Tactical School. And what I think is brilliant uh, is Phil has taken the actual lectures, uh, added some context and biographies on top of them. Uh, but that'll be a great reference for any air power historian to pull off. And you've heard me mention Act several times just during the course of this conversation. Uh, that's going to be an amazing book uh, to have to actually have those lectures at hand. Wow. Well, I wish you great success with that and with whatever your own research takes you. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.